Just a word of warning, this is a podcast of a Young Writers Festival and it has a lot of explicit language and some very deep adult concepts. I wouldn't recommend it for children and I would be considerate of others around you when playing this podcast. Maybe pop on some headphones, that way no one can get offended but you. This could get messy, this could get weird, I'm not sure where it's going to go but I'm very excited. Um, So strap yourselves in, we have some amazing performance for you today. All right, festival friends, welcome back to the National Young Writers Festival. I just would like to firstly acknowledge that we're standing on the land of the Awabakol and Wurramai people, that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you all for coming. Welcome to the Ethical Memoir panel here at National Young Writers Festival. It's a real honour to be sitting on the land of the oldest storytelling culture on the planet and talk about telling stories and also tell stories. It's a real privilege. So my name is Anthony DeCera. I'm a writer who is quite bloated today. Um, <laughs> That's the best bio I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I have a longer bio, but I'm not going to read it. Um, we'll go from here. This is Navot Zissen. Navot is a Jewish, queer, non-binary writer, activist and public speaker with a particular focus on issues surrounding queer, ge- uh, surrounding gender, sex, culture and sexuality. They run workshops in schools and workplaces around trans issues. They're also the author of the award-winning Finding Navot, a memoir on gender transition, which you can buy in the foyer. Please do that. Sitting next to me here is Rachel Kujip. Yes, got no. it right. Yeah, okay. Rachel is a Melbourne-based freelance writer, business owner, speaker and teacher. Her work has been featured in The Age, The Guardian, SBS, Daily Life, Frankie and The Big Issue, among others. Rachel is currently in the process of writing her first book, a memoir on what it's like to overcome childhood trauma. So before we get started, I want to do like a 30-second guide to defamation. It was promised in the kind of description of this event. I'm going to use my law degree for the first time and only time in my life and then I'm not going to talk about it at all for the rest of the panel. If someone would like to time in the audience, you're more than welcome. Essentially, how to not get sued. Truth is the best way to not defame someone. However, we know that our legal system is not very good and if you're a person of quote-unquote improper character, you'll be run across the coals. So before you publish, be very mindful. Even if it's true, you need to have a bulletproof kind of background level of sources. Even if you have those bulletproof background level of sources, you also have to know that it's your job on the balance of probabilities to prove that these things are true. So if your um, nemesis, because I've forgotten the correct word, um, if your nemesis has like a lot of resources, you have to be prepared to go up against that. If, an, if you're unsure about publishing and your editor wants to publish anyway, they're a dick and don't do it. Well, I would have loved this speech before I published my memoir. <laughs> Mike, yeah, no, I definitely had that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the only other thing is, if you have found yourself to defame someone, one of your best defences, which no one talks about, is the fact that someone needs to have a positive and good reputation to ruin. If the person does not have a good reputation, that is an amazing defence. Think about that. If they're a piece of shit and you call them a piece of shit, you're allowed to publish that. But also be mindful of those things. Anyway, enough about defamation. If you do want to talk more about that, talk to me after the panel. Anyway, so... Thanks. That was Thank great. You. I'm done. That was all I yeah, needed. That... <laughs> no, so um, I've caught myself in the cable. So I think one of the one of the most interesting things for me about memoir writing and what I'd like to talk to you both about to start with, we whenever we speak, we always talk about our duty to the people that appear in our work, which is obviously incredibly important. But First and foremost, we have a duty to ourselves as writers to kind of take care of ourselves and monitor what we're putting out there and how it affects how we navigate throughout the world. So I'd like to talk to both of you um, about how you take care of yourself and kind of ethically put yourself in your work. Either one of you can start. Um, Okay, so I think... um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about, like, mental health and um, about... Um, I won't go into detail, but I will be kind of talking a little bit about um, abusive relationships. Uh, So if anyone needs to step out, that's totally fine. Uh, I think for me, as someone who grew up um, being gaslit a lot by a parent, um, reclaiming my truth and, like, reclaiming my memory was, like, a huge process um, because memory is is subjective and um, 
that sounds obvious, but it's not obvious. And I think that in our society, there are a lot of things that we claim to be objective, like medicine, science, history, memory. None of those things are objective. They're all biased and they're all informed by white supremacy and other kind of forms of power structures in our world. So I think acknowledging that like memory is subjective, that my version of truth is just as true as anyone else's was like a huge process um, and like deeply terrifying. But I think that especially being a trans person and especially being a queer person who's constantly been told that like, I don't know who I am um, and that I'm wrong about who I am. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Um, so I think that like that was a big, it was just a powerful move. It was a, it was a power top kind of action. Um, and so I think that, yeah, like how I cared for myself with that was, I mean, I drank a lot of red wine when I wrote my book, um, a lot. Uh, maybe that's not the best form of caring for yourself, but it worked. And I think, yeah, I think it was just constantly validating myself um, and having to be my own parent and say like, you're, you're right. And even if you're not right, that's also okay. Um, maybe that doesn't work well with the defamation things, but... Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I really love that you said that because my experiences are exactly the same. Mm. And I haven't finished my memoir yet, but I've written a lot of personal pieces that kind of are going to, in essence, make up my memoir and a lot of people will come to me and I teach and they say well like how do you take care of yourself and what I learned pretty quickly is that you well I do I never put anything out into the world unless I've already mentally processed it like you you know if I've accepted it I've gone through it I've understood it and I really don't give a shit what anyone else says like you know I can put a piece out and my dad can be like that wasn't what happened I'd be like yeah well that's what I think or someone would say I don't agree with that and be like great, you have an opinion, love it, not going to affect me. But until I'm kind of through that process, I do not put anything out into the world because I think for a lot of writers and especially as women and a young writer, we get asked to put personal pieces out all the damn time. And once people know we have stories like this, right, they're like, great, so this is the journalist talking to me. They are great stories. Like for me it's a lot of like rags to riches stories. Everyone <laughs> loves that. But until like I'm processed it, I can become really vulnerable and lots of people put stuff out and then enjoy the fame and then when it flips on them and dad says something or mum says something or friends or people go, I didn't know that about you, um, it can be really stressful. And for me I was homeless Um I don't know, I'm getting emotional. Um, I was homeless and then people just like came out of nowhere and would come up to me at parties and wanted to talk about it and stuff and I was like, ugh, because it was like my little like secret that I let out, which I know we want to talk about more later on and I was not prepared like at all. Mm. And so now with my memoir I keep reminding myself, I'm like, you ain't ready, hence why I do not have a book right now. Mm. I started it and I was like, mm, I got some shit to deal with. So gone to therapy, it's kind of sitting there and I work at it when I feel mentally able. Mm. Right now it ain't happening. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really like really healthy approach and maybe something that I didn't necessarily do. Like I was really young when I got my book deal and I don't think I was necessarily prepared to – write those stories but yeah. I had a book deal which is like so an amazing thing that yeah. like people don't really get very often so I was like oh my god and that just kind of exacerbated my imposter syndrome times a thousand um, but I didn't necessarily have the space to do that processing and it was through writing the book and publishing it and having people respond to it that mm. I did that work which was bizarre um, yeah I think those are really yeah really interesting points and and it's so hard to grapple with like the, like for me I think it's one thing when people were really awful to me and then writing about that but it's another when they deny that those experiences ever happened because it's like yes I know I'm crazy okay like I already feel that way all the time I already feel like a burden I already feel like I'm too difficult in this world and this world wasn't created for people like me which is a lie um but yeah, to have that experience denied, I was terrified of. And I also think your point about not caring what people think is really pertinent because like I don't care what people think until I do care. Yeah. So like I don't care what transphobes think about me. I don't care about what right-wing fascists think about me. But I do care what members of my community think about me. I do care what other trans people think about me and I do care what other marginalised folk think about me, so much so that it was like 
absolutely debilitating to write my book for so long because I was like, what if I like stuff it up? And also I'm, I was 21 at the time of writing my book. So I was like, I'm going to be wrong. Like, I will jump in and say that in, I find it really interesting when we're talking about processing things before we commit them to paper. For me personally, if I can get to a point of laughter or I can start to make a joke out of it, that is how I am ready to kind of put myself out there and put my really personal stuff like out into the world because if I if I can joke about it then I'm comfortable with it I know that people in my life will be comfortable with it I'm very lucky to have a very close relationship with my family we have like I know that they'll be comfortable with the joke so I think knowing uh, to write memoir and to do so ethically so to speak is to actually really understand yourself and also intimately the people around you it's not like no man is an island or no human is an island. It's very much, and I think memoir is a really great way to kind of examine that. But anyway, um, to get back to the chat, I want to talk about the limits of the personal story. I really like what you said about how, uh, like, your trauma or your kind of writing can become brand, especially in an economy like ours, um, when journalism's getting worse. Offence yes. to some of the editors and journalists at the festival. <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> So, yeah, I, I would like to talk to you both about how do you, do you kind of embrace that and then use it to the best of your ability? Do you, how do you kind of say, no, I want to do other things, especially if you want to branch out into other types of writing? Um, where, where do you sit with that? I'm really interested. I'll go first. Um, well, I'm also like a business owner, so I also run my own business and sort of like in a sense if you think of what I do is two streams, like my business persona, like, you know, I coach people, I've worked for like large organisations doing communications, marketing and stuff and then I'm also a creative writer. So at the start I was like I must split these. Like what is like say, I don't know, the World Bank or Ernest & Young going to think about me being homeless? Like are they going to love that? Are they going to hate that? And I was stressing out about it but then I decided – Again, fuck it, because at that stage I was pretty comfortable with it. So I actually started to build them together and it made my overall brand, you know, personal brand, my overall, um, I suppose, like how people interact with me, the work I got, it actually got me work, got me more seen, got me more heard. So as an example, I um, have a whole bunch of degrees and stuff and because I, you know, came out as homeless, I sort of see it as like my coming out story, um, I ended up being a journalist for realestate.com.au for a year. Whether you agree with it or not, I tried to use my influence as a journalist and as a person experiencing homelessness to talk about, say, housing and these issues in a respectful way. So I thought that I was trying to contribute to that. I was using my personal brand um, for, like, good. But I think in some ways it can get bad when people try and change that personal brand. So I'm not going to name the publication, but one publication um, asked me if I would come and kind of do some videos um, on like homelessness and, you know, fly me to Sydney. And at that stage, I was like, awesome, I'm getting paid to talk about this stuff. Like nailed it, personal brands going well. But then when they started asking about the questions, I realised they'd frame them in a really bad way. Like they wanted me to talk about how I was like poor I was, but in a particular way that I found not respectful, degrading. Like they wanted me to pretty much say like some, like I said, the rags to riches. Like I was, you know, laying at home, starving to death and eating, you know, tomato sauce out of the cupboard, which is, you know, relates to some stories that I'd heard of young children with neglect. And I was like, hell no. One, that's not true. Two, that's not respectful to my parents and stuff. As you're saying, people are good and bad. And they had a completely terrible idea of that. So I chose not to do that despite being you know, in this publication, I would be on videos and stuff because it would ruin my personal brand and what I was trying to achieve. So, yeah, there are two ways that I've used it. Like, for what I see is, you know, good and then avoiding what could have been particularly bad for me and also, back to your point, respecting the community because I do care what community and people who have experienced homelessness and child childhood trauma, I do respect what they think. Oh, it's such a good question. I've never been asked this question before, but it's something that I like grapple with on a daily basis because my work is, <laughs> my trauma is my work. <laughs> like my work is my trauma. Um, like they're so interrelated and I, it's really, I think it's really, really hard to be like aggressively anti-capitalist in um, a very capitalist world and it's also really easy to say that you're like anti-capitalist when you're middle class um and I think that that's like an important thing to acknowledge as well and that 
you know, it is this really hard thing where you're like, yeah, like I wish that I could just kind of work by my values, but I also need to pay bills. I also need to like make money. And also the more free work I do for organizations that expect it, the less I respect myself um, and that I'm willing to do voluntary work, but it needs to be for people who I feel like held in that space. So I guess for me, like, I don't really feel like I compromise who I am in order to do the work that I do. I go into corporate spaces and I tell them where to shove it. And I like, like, I really, like I challenge them. I talk about colonization. I talk about white supremacy. I talk about like the ways that they need to reframe their systems and have less cis people doing the diversity and inclusion because who is the person with all the power um, welcoming people to the table and why don't we burn the table down? Uh, and so, like, I do think that I try to bring kind of, like, queer radical politics into, like, assimilationist um, normative spaces, but then it feels like that there is this level of guilt of, like, profiting from my activism or profiting from my story, especially when there are so many people who aren't listened to because they're not middle class, because they didn't receive the same education that I did, because they're not male passing or cis passing or white passing, like all of those kind of things. And it's like, so it's this really, it's this really difficult tension that I sit in where I'm like, am I using my privilege as a way of um, lifting up others or am I using my privilege as a way of lifting up myself? And I think never stopping to ask that question is my answer to that question is like as soon as I feel like I'm doing a good job that's when I've failed but also are those things mutually exclusive like that is a very hard thing to kind of toe that line of being like oh is this just for me is it for other people should it even be for other people if it is how do I even begin to step into that it's kind of a constant kind of feedback loop that you have to kind of yeah. weather and as any type of writer actually um and it's also like that which we're talking about um later today on the let's talk about tokenism panel um is that it's this weird kind of tokenistic thing where i'm like you need more trans and gender diversity and they're like okay great you should come and we'll pay you money and then i'm like oh i'm so resentful about this but also <laughs> you do need that and i will take your money and it just becomes this like weird yeah, situation where you're like, all right, I'll open the door for more possibility and I'll tell you how you can do that better. But at the end of the day, like some of those places, you're not going to go into a corporation and make it anti-capitalist. Like it's just not going to happen. So it's that kind of reform versus revolution activism where you're like changing the system from within and then also trying to tear the system down. And 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 I guess it it also just comes to like interdependence of activists and people is that like I don't have to do this single-handedly and even expecting that of myself is a pretty capitalist mentality. So I think reaching out to others and appreciating the work that they're doing and finding out how to bolster that up is important. But yeah. Um that's really interesting because as a writer, I don't even think about the system. I don't know if there is a system. I don't understand the system. And that's probably my biggest kind of blind spot as an artist. And it's something I'm always trying to remedy. And so I think for me, when I began writing, actually began, began writing for a magazine called Mao's Magazine, which co-director Bonnie founded, um, nepotism, it works. Um, but I found that I was... Writing for free, which I don't actually regret at all because I didn't know any different at that time. I was 17, 18, and it really helped me kind of find what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say, and I was given that freedom by the publication. But I found that I was living and committing it automatically to page and living and committing automatically to page. And I found that I wasn't... I just kind of stopped living and started going out and having experiences for the sake of hopefully getting, like, another really exciting story which isn't necessarily a bad thing because I had a lot of fun. And I think as writers, we all do that anyway. And that's fine. That's great. But I think in terms of approaching something as a brand, which I'm cynical about it, but we all have it and we just need to embrace it and live with it. It's fine. Um, and you're not a bad person for kind of considering your brand or kind of partaking in a system when it's the only system we really have. It's not a, it's not a dirty thing to do. Um, you can do dirty things to build your brand anyway um, <laughs> um but I, I found that I for me kind of taking care of myself and actually writing things that I was proud of but also that were good meant me actually stopping and reflecting and writing less I feel like yeah. so much when we talk about kind of this brand building so much of it is 
well, The Guardian's going to publish me, so I'm just going to, you know, my I, I, I was throwing down a flight to say, I need to write it. Like, it's just, and it's just, it's actually like stopping and thinking, not every opportunity is a good opportunity. If you have that luxury to not take the opportunity and it's better for your health, is that kind of the best thing for you? And that's a really tough thing if you're on the bones of your ass. And it's, so these discussions for me as well, when I didn't want, when I wasn't working, for me, I found it quite difficult to navigate being able to survive and make money doing something I really loved, mm. not being able to do that. So I think it's very easy for us as members of the community to be critical or cynical of memoirists, but actually there's quite a lot of considerations that as I've developed as a writer, I, I didn't really realise. And even hearing both of you speak, you're like, oh, shit, I hadn't even thought about that. The system. Well, yeah, it's also that question of why are you writing? Are you yeah. writing to create art? Are you writing to create money? And I actually think any of those answers are good answers. It's just understanding why you're doing something. And sometimes I know that I'm writing a speech for an event that I'm getting paid for, that I need to write. I don't necessarily want to, I don't necessarily feel inspired to, but I just need to do it. Um, and then I'm less hard on myself when it's not the most beautiful creative piece of writing I've ever written because it's like that's just not the intention of it and that's okay and it doesn't have to reflect that way. And then I also know that I write my poetry not for performance and not for publication because it's mine and it's the one form of writing that like I don't really want to share that much, you know, and I'm like I have and then people are like, oh, why haven't I seen this? And I'm like, because it's secret. It's, yeah, it's mine. Um, so I think asking yourself those questions are quite important as well. And that's why I split my creative writing and my business. Like I said, like in my head, they're completely different. When I do my creative writing, you know, memoir, any of my personal pieces that you read of mine, it's because I've gone through all of these processes and I write them for me. I don't write them for anyone else. And I know that I am in a, um, you know, privileged position to say that, that I don't need to write these personal pieces for money. But that's why I split it off so when I go to write my personal pieces, I can be really considered. Like I said, I can turn down opportunities and I've turned down more in the last year than I have said yes to, specifically for that. That um, is such a goal. Oh, my God. Specifically for Baller. that reason. Yeah. Um, but then, I, like, going on to your point, I've if you look, I've hardly written any personal pieces this year. So I've written one that went out in Eureka Street that was a creative piece on, um, like, my own mental health. And, yeah, otherwise I just write corporate stuff and I get paid. But even recently I got sick of writing for corporates and turning up to events and writing speeches and trying to talk about homelessness and, you know, the world and stuff. I have, like, a master's in international development, so I talk a lot about social justice and social issues. And I even got to the point that I was like, I don't, I, like, I don't care if you pay me, like, a grand or a couple grand or five bucks. I... It's not my job to come teach you how your piles of shit and you don't know because everyone applauds me and says I'm amazing and I'm like, I got money. And then I go home and I would sit there and be like, I feel like shit. Like why do I feel like shit? It's because I was using so, my story, I guess, so in a way that I didn't though. feel good. Like, yeah. I, like I so relate to that but then I'm also like, I guess because I do like – trans inclusivity training in those spaces that I'm like if I don't do that like are they gonna get that done and there will be trans people working in this workplace like whether I would be or not is actually irrelevant and so it's that really difficult thing that it's like yeah if you don't teach them about housing and and homelessness will they ever look past their noses but then is it like our job to do that but then I guess if you get paid a couple thousand dollars it is your job to do that but ah. <laughs> that's my internal monologue <laughs> yeah, mine's, mine's pretty much the same. I go around in circles and then I'm like, how much money did I make this month? Can I eat? I'm like, yes, goodbye opportunity mm. if I don't want it. And then, you know, if something came my way, I don't know, now, I, I still go through this in process over and over. It's not like set in stone. So at the moment I'm in a good position with my business, but mm. it goes up and down and stuff like that. So, And that's really interesting because for me, my working life and my writing life are very separate in the sense that I write at work, I work in comms and marketing, but it is very kind of driven away from anything personal for me. So I did go to a job interview once and someone was like, I've read a lot of your writing, it's great, but it all seems to be about your dick and that's not <laughs> what we're going to do. And I was like, I, we're in a, this is a children's theatre company. I wasn't going <laughs> to... fuck are you? Anyway, so, so I think also I, what, what, what I've really 
kind of gleaned from our conversation and, and it's actually helped me realise and I hope it's helped all of you realise and the people listening realise is that having delineations between your work is, no, is a really great thing, I think. Um, we're going to go to questions very, very soon, but I wanted us or each of us, and I probably should have told you this before, but oh well, um, to maybe pick a couple of pieces of memoir or personal writing that maybe you've written or someone else has written, mine are going to be that other people have written, that um, you think are like gold standard, amazing personal writing, hell yes, read this if you want, like this is the form now. Well, now I feel like I can't say my own. Uh, yeah, so. no, that's gold standard. Could not be improved. The gold standard's finding the boat, and it's in the fight. Sorry, anyway. Go. Oh my god! No, that wasn't me being ready to answer. That was okay. just me being snarky. Um, I can go because I've got two that you I do. You go, and I'll try and think of at least one. So there are two writers. Um, they're both Melbourne writers, which shits me, but whatever. Um, <laughs> the first one is Eleanor Savage. All of her writing is quite brilliant. She's recently released a chat book through the Atlas Review called Yellow City. It is the single most stunning and – actually, no, I have three. Fuck it. Um, go for it. Single most stunning kind of account of trauma that I've ever read. It is astoundingly beautiful – very funny, very personal, and she is, quite frankly, the best writer working in Australia today. I don't care what you say. She's amazing. The second one is by a Melbourne writer called Beck Varco or Rebecca Varco. She wrote a piece for Kill Your Darlings about street art in a country town. I've forgotten what it's called, even though I read it just before. And it is about her family, but it's also about art, but it's also about class, and it is in 2019, the, I'm getting shivers talking about it, the single most generous piece of work I have read from a writer in a very long time, or at least this year, maybe not barring Yellow City. Um, stunning. And Beck Varco is an incredible writer I encourage you to read. Um, also, Naoko Gori is a brilliant writer that you should all read as well. Their work is fantastic. But the third one is a book by Emma Marie Jones, who's ex-Adelaide, so fuck yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a book called Something to be Tiptoed Around Until It Goes Away and it recounts her dealing with grief in the face of the death of her sister and it brings in mythology but also a very personal um, story. It is stunning. I read it in one sitting. I think if memoir, I think when we talk about personal stories, we just think of those think pieces now but there are people doing very interesting things in the space and if you want to see how the form can evolve read those three works, those three people, and also Nagogori's kind of body of work, um, those four writers are some of the most interesting in Australia, also my co-panelists too. Um, but, yes, I 100% they're the ones for me that I think are doing something amazing. Also my work. Thanks. Um, but no, no, those, those writers are ones that you should watch if you want to develop your craft and actually really engage with a piece of, with, with a discourse surrounding personal writing. Um, I've just been reading lots of memoirs on and off in preparation for my own, like taking bits and pieces that I uh, really like. Whether these are like gold star, you'd probably agree. Um, Roxanne Gay's book um, and Brie Lee's book have really influenced my understanding of memoir because both of them bring, because I've got quite a diverse writing background, they bring in things that I like. So Roxanne's is really, she does a lot of creative writing, as you guys probably know, and poetry and stuff. You can tell because her book, to me, felt like fiction. Like the way that she set up the story structure for me was amazing and she slowly drip-fed her trauma. Like so it built up a story and it prepared us for when we found out what it was. It was obviously horrible and stuff, but it, like we were prepared for it. It didn't just slam us in the face because that's something that I need to consider with mine because mine is depressing AF. Um, so how can I not make people want to go home and cry into their coffee when they read the book, you want to sort of feel like you're going to get some something at the end or a better understanding of personal childhood trauma or something. And then Bree's the same because she relied on a lot of notes, um, a, knowledge, a lot of knowledge of um, the legal system, and I know a lot about um, childhood trauma, housing and stuff. So obviously I want to bring in all of that 
expertise into it, but again, without reeling off a bunch of boring facts because who's got time for that shit, right? You guys don't remember facts, you remember stories. So it allowed me again to see how I can bring in that body of knowledge and work it into the narrative. Um, so it builds up and you trust Brie when she's talking about her personal experiences and the system. And now when you read any of her work, again, I'm like, yes. Like I don't question anything um, <laughs> about her because I know that she's got that background and I wanted that for my, for my memoir. Yeah, I agree. I think Brie has a way of weaving in facts and history in a way that isn't dry. It's still very creative and, and poetic. Um, I think that, yeah, I definitely, I really love like beautiful use of language um, and poetry, but I don't like um, wanky pretentiousness and I can, I can smell it from a mile away. Like I really enjoy earnestness in writing and I, it's like it's like when I think there's kind of so I don't really believe in binaries but if I'm going to create one momentarily I think that there's like two kinds of feelings that I get from consuming art and one is oh god I can never make anything um, I, I'm the worst and the other is oh my god this is so beautiful and it inspires me to do something as well though that's the art that I look for is the one that is still brilliant but doesn't make me feel crappy about myself and maybe that's more my own thing to work through than the no, artist exactly themselves but the same. I want to feel good that I can go do stuff now, yeah not be like oh my god I just should just quit writing now just walk away I and I think that, like that that part of that um, I think part of that is accessibility. I think part of that is the way that someone writes that brings you into their world rather than excludes you out of. Um, and I think someone who does that beautifully is Ivan Coyote, who I speak about every time someone asks me to speak about a writer um, because they are just the most – they're a non-binary Canadian writer and they're just like the most earnest, kind person ever um and I've seen them on panels where people are like trying to other them and trying to be like oh what's it like to be a non-binary writer and they're just like yeah like writing's hard or like they just talk like they really kind of move away from that kind of question um and their writing is just it's just simple like it's simple it's simple and beautiful I don't think that beautiful writing needs to be really convoluted and complicated I think that there are really beautiful ways to speak about the world that children can understand because children see the world in such beautiful ways so I think if you can't explain some of the like poetic concepts that you've written to children then maybe you don't fully understand them because I think that, yeah, I do think that young people see the world in the most beautiful of ways. Um, so I guess it's artwork that brings that in. And I think that um, I agree, New Kagari as well, and I think has a brilliant way of passionately speaking about intersectional politics in a way that is accessible and in a way that is really, like, understandable to anyone regardless of their vernacular. Um, and I think another person is uh, Laniuk, who is a slam poet, and, like, their work, her work is just like really slams me in the face every time, but it's so beautiful and the way that she speaks about the non-linearity of time, I really appreciate. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just like seeking art that makes you feel like you can be an artist or like the world is worth making art about. Yeah. And I think that's a really great place to open up to questions. So if anyone has a question, I'm going to try and move as close to you so we can get them on the recording because we don't have a passing around. Can I do that? No? Fuck it. All right. So I'll listen and I'll repeat them. Um, so does anyone have a question? It's a really good question. Thanks, Dahlia. Um, so I sent – oh, sorry. Yeah, the question was about um, – or did you want no, to? No, no, sorry. The less I talk, the better. <laughs> um, it was about um, implicating people who aren't necessarily abusive in your work but rather the middle ground, like just people who just kind of are incidentally um, part of your story. Is that – yeah. Um, so I think – so with my book in particular, I sent um, drafts of it to my family members and to all my friends who were implicated in it, um, and I was terrified. And I sort of said to them, like, it's not going to print yet. If there are changes that you want to make, I, like, I want to work with you on that. And that was kind of important to me. Um, and I was terrified that they would come back and be like, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. Because my brother had made comments about certain memories and said that that didn't happen. He was like, I would never have said that. I'm not that awful. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that at the end of the day, and I think this is really important, and I think took my family a while to realise, is that contrary to what they may think, my memoir wasn't about them. 
It was about me. And um, I actually wasn't writing to put shit on anyone or to get my revenge or to, like, slander anybody. That wasn't my intention and that, that wouldn't have served me either. And so they all kind of read it and were like, oh, I came off a lot better than I thought I would. And I was like, yeah, because it's not, like, a slanderous piece of defamation. Like, it's not. that's not what it's about. And so... I think at the end of the day, if people would have come back and been like, I don't want to be included in this at all, I would have been faced with a real dilemma, especially if it was my siblings or my parents or whatever. Um, My dad and I, like, I severed our relationship because of my book, um, because of a lot of reasons, but the book was kind of the final thing for me. Um, He counted how many pages he wasn't in. So narcissists I don't know I don't get it um yeah so that was when I was like cool I don't I don't need you in my life but um my other siblings and my friends I think they were all stoked to be in a book um my one friend uh got really drunk at a party once and at the beginning of the party she was like my friend wrote a book and by the end of the party she was going around saying my friend wrote a book about me and then was like and then I overheard her at the end of the party say I wrote a book (laughs) So I think for the most part, people were just kind of into it, which was maybe a little bit too much. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But I do think getting that feedback and making those changes was important for me. And I like to add to that. So my brother was homeless um, with me. And so he kind of doesn't give a shit, but I think he's starting to care that he's in a lot of my writing. But I actually use creative ways. So you feel he is next to me throughout the entire story, but the story is always from my point of view. So he will say things um, like I'm uh, a piece is coming out, an anthology that's being published on homelessness and place um, in a couple of weeks that he's in. And yeah, he's there, he's speaking, etc. But it's always like from my point of view. So a lot of I did a lot of creative work whenever I feature him to make sure you know that they're there and they're a part of the story, but it's not focused on them. And so it's something that I've had to consider a lot. And the same thing like with my parents, I've got weird relationships. Sometimes I'm talking to them, sometimes I'm not. And thinking about how I'm going to include that um, in the memoir. Because, yeah, my brother is not going to be the perfect character. He's not perfect, even though he didn't necessarily do a lot of things, but he's still going to be there. And so I have to be really mindful, like you said, of sort of these in-between characters um, to create a whole picture but also be respectful because I can't say what he thought or how, how he felt and I know that he thinks completely different to me. Like, you you know, he, one day we walked past some homeless people in Melbourne and he's like, wow, there are a lot of homeless people here because we're originally from Tasmania. He's like, God, what do they do to, like, end up on the streets? And I, like, turn around and nearly, like, slapped him. I was so outraged. But his perception of it is completely different and then I was like you should know about this we were home that and like talk to definitions and stuff like that um so yeah it's really complex when it involves family friends and all that again talking about defamation having to make sure they're not identifiable um and some friends like yeah go for gold but I don't want anyone to know that it's me at all and that's really hard from a small town Hobart like when I'm going to be saying stuff maybe the same as you it's gonna be pretty hard I don't know I'm gonna have to like not talk about really what they look like, not talk about a whole bunch of stuff to try and protect their identity. Again, why my memoir is taking longer because I'm trying to be mindful of these and mine is a real minefield. Um, Yeah, and I think consent is a really important part of it and that it is complicated and it's not as simple as like just an enthusiastic yes or nothing. Like it is a little bit more complicated when it comes to memoir and writing, but I do think it's important to have that conversation with those people. And I also think really asking yourself what your intention is, is important as well, because writing can be therapy, but if your intention is just to like let out this big rant on someone, maybe you should take that to your therapist and not like publish that into the world. Yeah. Um, I would add to that that my writing, my memoir is quite different in that it is very obviously constructed, is mostly humorous hopefully um so with me people are recognizable but also I'm cherry picking things and very consciously building things because my life isn't that like it's just I'm just not that interesting and uh no it's genuinely not very interesting um can't wait to buy it yeah come on five stars didn't read it um (laughs) Sorry for shouting into the microphone. But so I kind of just don't care. Like, I'm constructing it. It's fine. My, again, I have really good relationships with people. I published a piece recently about, it was a joke piece about what to buy climate change deniers for Christmas. (laughs) 
um, because my friend is very environmental. She's okay, I'll tell you, this is very funny. Um, and she's recently transitioned into using a moon cup. Um, and I was like, that's great, that's so good. But she was like telling me about it. She's like, and Anthony, if you want, like I can save the refuse and jar it and then you can put it in your house plants. And I was like, <laughs> don't. <laughs> Do that. And I just thought like... How? It's a really creative Christmas present. I know it is, but oh, I was like, if I, I could still menstruate, yeah. <laughs> people would be getting really Business. interesting presents. There, there is a section of the hipster internet, and kind of like that would be all over. But my, like, someone like she said that to me in good faith, and I just looked at her and went, "You've known me for so like I'm going to write about it." And um, but then I thought about like my family and how they are just like. They, like, they recycle, but they're not, like, they're just kind of dubious of everything. And that's just the way they are, and it's fine. Like, my nonna lived through World War II. Like, if she doesn't want to fucking recycle a can, I'm not going to be like, nonna, the bees. Like, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and I just, so, yeah, so, like, I kind of, so for me, and I think it really depends on what type of writer you're going to be and what type of writer you are, if you're going to be telling a very true and honest I'm doing this, um, personal story, then you really should be mindful. Those questions of consent are really important. If you are putting things through multiple lenses and building out kind of worlds within your own to a point where, like, only the person reading is going to recognise themselves and they're probably going to laugh about it anyway, I say go for it. I think the more that we as writers can kind of give ourselves permission to do it, and that doesn't mean do it, publish it, and then be like, whoopsie. It means write it down and then think about it. Because the, the, the minute you start writing it, once you're finished, you can be like, no. Like, if you cut yourself, if you hedge yourself off at the pass, it's never going to happen. So I think that's really important. Yeah, and I also want to say, like, really quickly that I think it's always funny how much memoirists get asked these kind of questions and not fiction writers. Yeah. And, like, let's not pretend that fiction isn't steeped in realness as well and that yeah. characters aren't based upon others or that people will read themselves into your characters and you're like, that's not about you. It's got nothing to do yeah. with you. But, like, I started writing fiction to escape that yeah. and then people are like, oh, that seemed really similar to me or what?" And it's just like, oh, God, you can't escape this. Yeah. But um, I do think that, you know, like, it's funny how much that is kind of projected onto non-fiction writers so much more than fiction and like those like those lines between fiction and non-fiction are we create this like really heavy binary but I actually think they're much more fluid yeah and let's not yeah. pretend that non-fiction writers aren't artists and using artifice in every word that we put down on the page it just mm. just accept it you'll be better for it I think recently I had a piece published in an anthology which was very nice and I'll actually be reading it tonight at late night readings please come along um <laughs> along with some very brilliant writers as well, who I will plug later. But my mum got mentioned and she said something very funny, um, which was after my first sexual experience, I was very paranoid and I thought I'd contracted HIV, even though I, there was no way I could contract it, obviously, because the sex wasn't penetrative. So, But I was like 18 and I had no idea about anything because that education wasn't there for me. I was like, Mum, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to die. And she was like, you're not going to die, you're not going to die. I'm like, Mum, I'm going, like, how do you know I'm not going to die? Like, what are you going to do? And she just turned around point blank and went, Anthony, if you had HIV, you'd be thin. So... Which is <laughs> the best response to, like, smacking the anxiety out of your idiot child. <laughs> You can all laugh. I laughed. It's fine. I'm a bit shocked. I'm uh, like, uh, I, I have a very honest. So I think being honest with yourself about why you're writing it is good. When I wrote that about my mum, I wrote it down because it is fucking hilarious. If I would have written it down because I'm a vindictive, like I'm vindictive and I'm like, you're a bitch and I'm going to get you, and then that is not the right way. Like, that's not the right way to write. It's not the right way to create art. If you're doing that, you're probably creating bad art. Yeah. Like... If, like, put it in a diary, talk to your therapist about, you know, like, put it down, breathe with it, and then get to the heart of what, why you're doing this. And if you can get past that kind of venom and you still want to publish it, then it's fine. My mum said, choose, like, your writing or me. And I said, my writing every time, the fact that you asked me to choose answers it for me. Me, every single time. There were certain things that my dad wanted changed in the book um, that I felt 
I could honour without it changing my story because it wasn't my story to tell. Um, and so I did edit those things. Uh, and there were other things that were just the truth that I wasn't going to – like I think if you're going to be transphobic or you're going to be shit – you need to own that and I actually think the way that you follow up that behaviour is so much more defining than the act itself. So if you're going to follow it up with defence and aggression and denial, I think that defines who you are a lot more than the initial behaviour. Um, and so I wasn't willing to change that and and as I said, we don't have a relationship any, anymore with my mum. Her responses were, were quite good. I mean, the thing is, is that I started as a public speaker before a writer and I, I continue to be a public speaker so I talk about this stuff constantly and she's been in the audience of panels where I've said my mum was awful about my transition and then she comes up and she's like why were you so mean to me about like that like I thought it was all good now and kind of thing and you know I think that's hard for her to also understand that we have different stories and that both of our stories are valid and that yeah she might be trying but like it's not good enough for me and and then I have to also like grapple with that and be like, that's a high expectation to have or, or whatever. Um, but I think <laughs> what I forget sometimes is that my mom and I have a very open relationship, but I wrote an article for Archer about um, sex toys and my relationship with sex toys. And I was like, mom, look, I got an article published, like read it. I'm so proud. And then she started reading. It was like, I don't think I should read this. Like, <laughs> this is too personal. Um, and then wouldn't come to my events at Melbourne Writers because I was both speaking about sex toys and sex. And then I was reading poetry naked. And I was like, yeah, okay, maybe that's fair. <laughs> you know, like my mum doesn't support my art. Um, so I think I was also like realising where the boundaries kind of are with that as well and that like she reserves a right to not want to engage in some of my work and that that's understandable too. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, that, I think that that comes down to negotiation versus sacrifice um, and that there are certain things that, Again, like I was willing to negotiate with my parents about the ways that I um, wrote about them or like certain facts that I had written because it didn't take away from my story and from my truth. And I think that's that's the, the boundary a little bit of like understanding. I think it was about maintaining myself and making sure that I was still intact. So if there were compromises that were asked of me that would then um, – denigrate my own story or my own relationship with myself that was when I said no because being ethical isn't just about being ethical to others it's also about being ethical to yourself so ethical memoir is also representing yourself ethically and and I grappled with that probably more than anything else because writing as a you know, as a 19, 20-year-old um, wasn't the same perspective that I had when I was 12 or the, when I was 10. And I could hear myself in my head, like me writing about me as, at 16, being like, oh, she didn't know anything. Like, I know so much more now. And then I could hear 16-year-old me and be like, what the hell? Like, that's bullshit. I knew exactly who I was. And then I had to actually honour that and be like, that's true. You did know who you were. Like at that point in time, you were a lesbian. You were like this, this and this. You wanted to be a psychologist. Like all of that stuff was true. And so it was about actually researching myself in those times of my life and, you know, going back on social media and reading my statuses or like looking at photos or really putting myself into some of those problematic spaces as well, because we all love to pretend that we're like super switched on to politics and stuff now, but like we weren't always and I think like kind of honouring that as part of my journey was also like a big thing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to understand that ethical memoir is about your relationship to others but it is first and foremost about your relationship with yourself. Yeah, and I'll add to that. Um, that is something that I'm struggling with because my parents during that time, my dad uh, is an alcoholic or recovered alcoholic and my, has lots of anxiety and mental health and same as my like mum and stuff, you know, smoking pot, um, drinking, all of that. So it's really hard because they will come back to me and say, that's not how I remember it. And I'm like, well, it, that's how three-year-old Rachel remembers it. So I have to do the same thing. I keep going, well, maybe now as an adult I can reflect and say, well, I thought something differently, but at the moment I'm writing it as like two or three-year-old Rachel or 10-year-old Rachel, whatever, through those experiences and that's how I'm sort of making sure that I'm being seen 
and heard through that. And then sometimes I check for clarification with dad or mum or my brother or friends to say, oh, why did you act in that moment that way? Or why did you say that? Or why do you think you behave that way? I mean, you're wasted, but why do you think you're angry or upset? Um, And then I take those on board and then kind of have a sort of more older reflection or try and weave those into the story. So again, the characters are true to who they are and why they chose to do things, why they believe they try to do things. But I pretty much refuse to change anything in my story, um, even if my parents say it didn't happen, because if I'm confident in my head I remember it, it's what three-year-old three Rachel remembers. It's, it's truth for me because I'm still carrying it now at like 30-something. So obviously it's, it's there, it's built on some form of truth and I'm going to write that truth as we know, memoirs, nothing's perfect. So you already know that coming in. You've just got to trust that those are real experiences. I have nothing to add. That was very good. Um, one more question over there to the person with the exceptionally good jumper. Um, yeah. yeah, the question yep. was whether you've ever or whether one of us has ever actively chose not to seek a conversation with someone if they've ever um, been very intimately connected to a story for those that couldn't hear. Um, I pretty much, again, following on from that, large chunks of my story haven't asked for clarification from my parents because they won't remember or it would be completely different and I want to honour my memory. And I know that I've probably blurred a few memories together and stuff like that. Um, Yes, there's huge chunks. It's only later from about 10 under, maybe about 8 under, I don't ask for any clarification. Over that I do. Um, I don't know if that's right, but that's what I've decided to do to honour like what I call like mini little Rachel. So, yeah, that's the decisions I've made. Anything over that, I will ask for clarification. Yeah, I didn't, like, go back and show them every story and get approval on each of them. I sent them the entire book and was like, it's already done. You can make some edits if you want, but, like, this is my book. Um, and that was important to me and I, I needed to have the the kind of final sign-off, but I wasn't. it wasn't a collaborative process um, and I didn't want it to be. Uh, and there were exes and, you know, particularly, like, the first lover I've ever had um, who was awful that I had absolutely no intention of ever speaking to again and... I didn't go into heaps of detail about what happened there, but that's my story. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that you always have to have those conversations in order to be ethical. And, again, like asking yourself what is the ethical choice for me because maybe it wouldn't be ethical to have that conversation with that person for you. Maybe you'd be degrading at your own relationship and your own boundaries if you eased back into that or brought that back into your life. So, yeah, I think that's quite important. I think I'm in the same boat. The only thing I would go back to what I said about I always stop and think about my intention for writing it. Is my intention because I want to fucking pin them to the cross? Or is it because I have something to communicate? And if it's because I have something to communicate and I can stand by it, then I'm fine. I don't talk to them about it, really. But it's a case-by-case basis. But anyway, thank you so, so much for coming. Um, Give the panellists an incredible round of applause. They were incredible. The National Young Writers' Festival occurs annually over the Labor Day holiday weekend in late September, early October in Newcastle, New South Wales. It is made possible by the support of Create New South Wales, the Australia Council for the Arts and the copyright agency Cultural Fund. If you want to hear more panels from the National Young Writers' Festival 2019 as well as some of the amazing readings that came out of that festival, then head on over to their website www.youngwritersfestival.org You can also follow them on Twitter and Facebook or subscribe to the National Young Writers Festival on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. This podcast episode was produced, recorded and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting, a proud supporter of the National Young Writers Festival. (laughs) 